council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the insight that this passage of Scripture provides us. We thank you, Lord, that here you have pulled back the curtain, so to speak, shown us your sovereign plan at work in the midst of much ungodliness. God, we thank you that your sovereign plan is always at work, that we can rest in that. And I pray that as we think about these truths today and as we meditate upon the majesty of who you are, that you would give us a high view of you, God, that you would help us to see that your hand cannot be stayed, that no one can say to you, what have you done? Father, thank you for your goodness. We pray that Christ would be exalted in our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. It is good to be back with you again. This morning I want to start off with a question for consideration and for reflection as we dive into our passage today. And we've been touching a lot around this particular theme that we're going to be looking at as of late, but here today we are confronted with this truth in a very direct way. And the question is this, do you believe that God is in control? Now, for most of you, your visceral response to that question is, yes, of course he is. That is what we believe. God is sovereign. He is sovereign over all. Praise God. But the question becomes real when you are living life out there. When you're watching our world spin out of control, or our country being destroyed, or evil and godless men ascending to power, when globalist elites from all over the world gather in Davos this past week at the World Economic Forum in order to bring about their stated agenda of eliminating our personal property rights and feeding us a steady diet of bugs. It's a true story. Is God sovereign over that? Or on a more personal level, do you believe God is in control when Your health is wrecked with no end in sight. Or when your job is a daily grind and it's not quite providing what you need. Or when you and your spouse or your kids 
cannot see eye to eye and the tension in your home just persists. Or when you feel like you're doing everything right but nothing is going right. Do you believe God is in control even in the midst of those things? If we are honest, the way that we respond to some of these situations does not always communicate what we believe. But regardless of how we may feel at any given time, the reality is, in every situation under the sun, whether global or personal, God is sovereign. And as we continue here in the Gospel of John, we have come to a passage that confronts us on this issue. It confronts the natural human understanding of how this world works. And it reminds us all of how truly in control God really is. And when I say that, I don't mean that God can figure out ways to bring some good out of bad. That when bad things are going on, sometimes they happen outside of His will, but He's, he's got enough in control that he can, he can somehow turn that for good. Not at all. The Bible doesn't teach that. I mean that even the bad things that are going on are a part of His holy decree to accomplish His holy purposes. As the London Baptist Confession rightly put it in chapter 3 on the decree of God, they said it this way, God hath decreed in Himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. Now that's, that's pretty comprehensive. All things whatsoever may come to pass. It doesn't leave anything out. You may say, well, that's all fine and well, but where are they getting that from Scripture? Well, there's countless passages that demonstrate that reality. Paul read one for us just a minute ago from Daniel chapter 4. But one of the most succinct and direct comes from Ephesians chapter 1. You may remember this when we went through it. Paul, the different Paul, Paul the Apostle, said, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You can see where they were drawing that language from in the London Baptist Confession, because that doesn't leave anything out either. And even when it comes to the minutiae of our personal lives, it still includes everything. As David said in Psalm 139, all of my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. The fact is, there are few doctrines that simultaneously provoke more anger and provoke more comfort than this one. As Spurgeon once said, no doctrine in the whole of the Word of God has excited the hatred of mankind more than the truth of the absolute sovereignty of God. The fact that the Lord reigneth is indisputable, and it is this fact that arouses the utmost opposition in the unrenewed human heart. And that is absolutely true. But on the flip side of that, for the believer, when this is rightly understood, there are few doctrines that can provide as much comfort as this one. As Spurgeon also rightly said, 
God's sovereignty is the pillow on which the believer can lay his head. God is in control. But how does this, how does this work out? How can God decree even the evil atrocities of this world and bring about his good purposes? Well, today we're going to see that play out in the plotting of the most evil atrocity that has ever been committed in this world. And in the passage before us today, we see just how sovereign God truly is. So we're just going to walk through this passage and these historical events that, that took place as a result of the resurrection of Lazarus. And John is going to peel back the curtain, so to speak, and reveal what's, what's really going on. So here we're going to see three events all working out God's sovereign plan of redemption. Now the report of the people, the witnesses, and the plot of the Jewish leaders in the withdrawal of Jesus. Now, we're going to spend the vast majority of our time on the plot itself, and we're just briefly going to touch on the withdrawal. But as we work through this, I hope that you see there is nothing random in the universe. From the actions of insignificant people to the plans of the highest powers in the world, God is working things out for His glory and for our good. And for that reason, we as his people can rest and trust in this truth. Amen. Amen. So let's look at this. Let's work through this. Starting with the first event, the cause of the plot, the report of the people. Look at verse 45. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, we again, for the, I don't know how many times in this book, have a divided response from the Jews to Jesus. And just to remind us what we're talking about here, we have just worked through the climactic sign of Christ when he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. And in so doing, he demonstrated who he was as the Son of God sent from heaven who has power even over death itself. And when this miracle was performed, it was not performed in isolation or just with a few of Jesus' followers. There was actually a whole host of people who had come to grieve with Martha and Mary for their loss from Jerusalem. And John made sure we understood that back in verse 18. From the moment of Jesus' arrival in Bethany, we as the readers are supposed to see that there is an audience here who, who witnessed this great miracle who were not exactly friendly to Jesus. Many of the Jews from Jerusalem had come, the place of nonstop opposition for Jesus, and they were there to watch what would take place. And they have a divided reaction. And John says, some of them, when they saw it, they believed in him. And we really don't know as we look at this, the nature of this belief. Is this the same type of fickle belief that we saw in chapter 2, in chapter 4, in chapter 6? Or was this genuine faith in Christ as the Son of God? We don't know. John doesn't tell us. But he does paint it as more positive than the other response. He intentionally contrasts it with the other predominant reaction, which was to go and report it to the Pharisees. 
John is pointing, painting that as an action of unbelief in contrast to those who did believe. And the fact is, by this point, everyone in Jerusalem knows that the Pharisees and all of the Jewish leadership wanted Jesus dead. It was no secret. We have seen this over and over in the gospel. And even back in chapter 7, John made it clear that even the people were aware of it. When Jesus stood up to speak at the Feast of Tabernacles, some of the people, in, in verse 25, it says, Some of the people of Jerusalem said, Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? They knew it then, and they know it even more now with everything that unfolded chapters 8 through 10. The, the point being is we cannot see this reporting in a positive light. They knew the Pharisees wanted him dead, and they are reporting him for that reason. They're stirring things up. And that is why John paints their actions in contrast to those who believe. Likely they were doing this either to try to curry favor with the religious elites, or perhaps because, like the Pharisees, they saw Jesus as a threat, a threat to themselves or a threat to their country. We don't exactly know what their motives were, but we know that their motives were rooted in unbelief. And this is, this is just blind unbelief at work, which when you stop to think about it, is, is truly remarkable. I mean, think about what these people just witnessed. They knew Lazarus was dead. There was no possible way to bring that into question. He had been rotting in the tomb for four days. And then they watched Jesus pray to his father and then bring Lazarus back from the dead with the mere power of his word. By his own authoritative command, Lazarus came forth and they watched it happen. These people had front row seats to the glory of God on display in the person of Jesus Christ. Raw power over death at work right before them. And they walked away in unbelief. You know, so often in life you'll hear people say, if God will just give me a sign, then I would believe. It's not true. And do you know why it's not true? Because unbelief is always, always, 100% of the time, no matter what people say, a moral issue. It is never an intellectual issue. It's not from a lack of evidence. We are surrounded by evidence every day. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim His handiwork. Creation testifies. We all know that God exists just by nature, without seeing the supernatural. But yet, even when confronted with the undeniable supernatural work of God, the fallen human heart on its own remains unmoved. It remains in its rejection of God. And for that reason, when we look at the blindness of this unbelief, or any unbelief, the unbelief that pervades our culture, on the one hand, we need to, we need to recognize it for what it is. It is sinful rebellion against God. As John Stott once said, unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied, it is a sin to be deplored. And that's exactly right. 
But I, I will go even a step beyond that. It is not just a sin among others. It is the chief sin of mankind from which all other sin springs forth. And it is far more evil than we typically give it credit. We want to look at the worst outward manifestations of sin and see that as the height of evil. Like the Holocaust. But those are just fruit issues, actually. The issue at the root of it all is the inward rejection of God. The creature's rejection of the Creator. It is, it is evil in its purest form. And it is what gives rise to everything else. And it exists not from a lack of evidence, but because the fallen human heart is bent against the living God. We need to recognize that. But on the other hand, we also need to recognize that none of us pulled ourselves out of that state on our own. Even our belief is a product of sovereign grace. A product of the new birth, of the the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts. The outworking of the God who said, I will have mercy upon whom I have mercy. So even here we see the sovereignty of God at work. And we should recognize, if not for the grace of God, there go I. But here in these actions, we do get a glimpse of how irrational and how far unbelief will take someone. These people respond to this glorious miracle of bringing Lazarus back from the dead by reporting the Son of God to his murderous enemies. But understanding that this action was a necessary action in the line of the dominoes that are leading to everything that will take place is important here. We need to see that this is, this is a part of the chain of events that God is working out to work out His plan of redemption. But now His, his enemies, being, being confronted with the report that shows the truth of who Jesus is again, devise the ultimate act of unbelief, the final plot to kill Jesus. Let's now look at the plot itself. Look at verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You can see the, the, the panic setting in on these leaders as they receive this report. They immediately call for an assembly of the, of the council. This is, this is the Sanhedrin that is being called together here. The word that's translated the council is literally the word Sanhedrin. And it's the only time that it's used in the Gospel of John. This is no small meeting. See, the Sanhedrin was a council made up of the highest religious leaders of the day. It was comprised predominantly of Sadducees, but it also included Pharisees, and they served as the supreme governing authorities over the Jewish nation. It was, it was thought to be modeled after the way, that, the way things functioned under Moses, because there were 70 members of the council plus the high priest who presided over it all. The chief priests, as John mentions here in plural, would have been those priests who were 
drawn from the family of the high priest. But these, were, these men were rich. They, they were powerful. They were revered. And they had a lot to lose. And in the Jewish context, this is the highest authority in their country. This is, this is all the judicial and the religious power all roped together in one. So it's no, it's no small thing for them to convene. This would be like the, the branches of all of our government coming together with many of the highest and most powerful religious leaders all together in one official capacity. It's a big deal. Now that being said, you need to understand that at this time, Israel was not an independent country. It was actually a puppet state under the rule and authority and heavy taxation of the Roman Empire. The Romans allowed them to have their own governmental authority and their religion so long as they behaved. And the pressure and the tension between the Jews and the Romans were almost always on shaky ground. And they only grew worse over time until it finally reached a boiling point and the Romans came in and completely wiped them out in 70 A.D., which is about 40 years from this point. But a cataclysmic event like what happened in 70 A.D. is very much what they're worried about. And it gives us a ton of insight into what these, these men really care about. And it's not God nor His promises. I mean, just stop and think about this. Think about everything that these guys have heard and seen from Christ leading up to this. The majority of this gospel has thus far been focused on the rising tension between this group of men and Jesus. And Jesus has given them everything they need to see and to hear who He truly is. And it began in chapter 1 with John the Baptist testing to his, who he is when they sent men to confront John. And then it continued in chapter 2 with the cleansing of the temple and Jesus saying, this is my father's house. And then him performing many signs and miracles at the first Passover. Picked up in chapter 5 with the healing of the lame man in Jerusalem. And then Jesus gives these men that glorious speech about his divine identity attested to by many witnesses. Picks up again in chapter 7 and 8 with his public appearance and teaching at the Feast of Tabernacles where he finished it off by saying, Before Abraham was, I am. Continued in chapter 9 and 10 with the healing of the man born blind and the subsequent revealing that he is the good shepherd and he's one with the Father. And now Jesus undeniably raises Lazarus from the dead by the power of his voice with countless eyewitnesses testifying to it who directly report to these men. And yet they persist in their unbelief. And notice there is not now nor really anywhere in this gospel a denial of Jesus' works. They were not bringing that into contention. They knew that all of this was actually taking place. It was just a refusal to believe what the signs were pointing to. And here the council condemns them, themselves by their own words. They said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. They knew it. They didn't even question it. They didn't even question the raising of the dead. They don't dispute it anymore. They just don't know what to do with it. 
Because as they say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come in and take away both our place and our nation. You see, what they were afraid of is that he would, in fact, be believed upon to be the Messiah by the people. And that in hope of national deliverance, the people would declare him to be king. And and to be honest, that's, that's a legitimate fear. We saw this starting to take shape in Galilee back in chapter 6 where it said the people were ready to take him by force and make him their king. That was until Jesus exposed their false and self-centered faith in the bread of life discourse. But this was not an unreasonable concern. And at this time, historically speaking, in in the region of Judea where Jerusalem is, they were not allowed to have a king under Roman rule. Galilee had a king, but Judea did not. The Sanhedrin was allowed to maintain their authority and power, but after the death of Herod the Great, there was no king allowed over the Jews in Judea by the order of Rome. So if the people were to name Jesus king, Rome would view that as an uprising and a rebellion against their authority. And that's what these leaders are in fear of. When they say that they'll come in and take our place in our nation. They're worried about the most powerful army in the history of the world coming and destroying everything that they have. And when they say our place, that's a reference to our holy place, our temple, which was the center of their religion. Without that, they can't even function as they're supposed to, which they haven't been able to since 70 A.D. And that concern ultimately is about the loss of power and position. And it is what is driving them here in their concerns. And what's, what's especially tragic about this is when you remember who these guys are. These are the religious leaders of the chosen nation of God. They, they comprise men who are supposed to be not only the authority, but the protectors of truth the practitioners of righteousness, the guides of the people, the pious example of what it is to follow and serve the one true God. And when the God that they proclaim to worship comes in their midst and demonstrates who He is, they assemble, but not to rejoice in the arrival of their Messiah, but to decide what to do with the problem of Jesus. And they despise him so much, they couldn't even bring themselves to refer to him by name. Just this man. And thus you see the tragedy of John's opening words in the prologue. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Rather than receive him, they see him as a threat. A threat to their own greed and power and way of life. And isn't that so often the case even now. It is very often that people will actually see the undeniable truth of who Christ is right before them, but absolutely refuse to believe and follow Him, refuse to come to Him, because they know it will cost them. You see, coming to Christ has a cost, not just for these elites, but for everybody. The fact is, Jesus is a threat to everybody. 
Because to truly follow him has a high cost. It will cost you your pride. It will cost you your sin. It will cost you the pursuit and love of everything in this world. It can often cost you your friends. It can cost you your family. It will cost you your reputation. It does actually cost you everything in this world. In a very real sense, Jesus is a threat to everyone because he demands all of everyone. As Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Christ is either all to you or he is nothing. There is no in between. And if he is all, then you need to be willing, like Paul, to count everything as loss in your life for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. But these leaders were not there. To spin off of Jim Elliot's famous words, they were not ready to give up what they cannot keep in order to gain what they cannot lose. They were desperate to keep their temporary status in this world. And Caiaphas, the high priest, has a plan to do so. Look what he says in verse 49. It says, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So John now introduces us to Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel. And when John says he was the high priest that year, He's not saying it because they, they rotated every year or something of that sort. The high priest actually served in that role until he died. And Caiaphas served as high priest for around 18 years. But when it says that year, which John's going to say a few more times, it's likely that he means that year that everything happened. That year that Jesus was betrayed and murdered. That year that he rose victorious from the grave. That year that everything changed. Caiaphas was high priest that year. And for that reason, it was Caiaphas who presided over this council to form this plan. And later he will preside over Jesus' rigged trial to carry out this plan. And Caiaphas has, has no interest in discussing the merits of Christ's ministry, nor does he even think this is a confusing issue. There is one solution to this problem. And he, he derides his fellow leaders for not seeing it as clearly as he does. When he says, you know nothing at all, he is speaking to them with absolute contempt for not seeing what is so obvious to him. And pay careful attention to his words. He says, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. Not that the whole nation should perish. He shows here by his words that he does not even truly care for the people. It's ultimately not about them. Oh, he doesn't want them to get wiped out by the Romans or for the nation to be lost, to be sure. But the reason is it's better for them. It's better for those who are in positions of power. In his mind, the people and the nation exist to serve and obey them. They do not exist to serve the people. 
They are on the top of the food chain of this nation, and to lose the nation would be to lose their position. Sounds like some governmental leaders in our day. So for him, though, the obvious thing here to do is to dispose of this Jesus. And he frames it in sacrificial terms. One man dying for the people, on behalf of the people. This was intentional, sacrificial language. Now this is, in his mind, not a sacrifice to curry favor with with God, obviously. But it was a sacrifice to curry favor with the Romans on behalf of the people. To present Jesus as an insurrectionist and put themselves on the same side of the Romans with this common enemy, Jesus. In fact, when we get to the actual trial, you will see how much Caiaphas' plan was driving them. In chapter 19, when Pilate seeks to release Jesus, they cry out, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. And then when Pilate kicks back with some derision, saying, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests say, We have no king but Caesar. They wanted favor with the Romans. Jesus, in their mind, was a sacrifice, not to God for the forgiveness of sin and the salvation of the people, but to Caesar, to Rome, for the maintaining of their power and their position over the people. And thus you can see how satanic this plot truly was. Jesus' words to these men back in chapter 8 are seen here to be no exaggeration here in chapter 11. When Jesus said to them in John 8, 44, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not on my own accord, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Though these men serve in the highest religious positions of the chosen nation of Israel, God was not their father. Satan was. And still is. Christless Judaism is satanic. It is fundamentally anti-Christ. It is a rejection of the Son. If you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. And this plot was made in order to carry out Satan's desires. To murder the Son of God. To murder Jesus Satan wanted nothing more than to kill the Blessed One and to reign over Him victorious. And he sought to use these men and their sinful desires to carry it out. And not only these men, but everyone involved. And we're going to see him several times more, especially with Judas in chapter 13, when Satan enters him before his betrayal of Christ. This was a satanic plot from beginning to end. But unbeknownst to these men and unbeknownst to Satan himself, all of them were actually carrying out God's plan. Look how John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives us insight into what's really going on here 
when Caiaphas said these words and laid out this plan. Verse 51 says, He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. See, Caiaphas' words had more meaning and purpose than anyone present could have imagined, even himself. In a very real sense, Caiaphas was the last functioning high priest under the Old Covenant while it was still enacted. Because once Christ died and rose again, the New Covenant was ratified. And Jesus became our eternal high priest whose office will never end because he will never die again. But Caiaphas, as this this last high priest under the Old Covenant, who was supposed to be functioning in the service of God, God still used. God caused him to work in his service, even in the midst of his evil rebellion, in order to carry out his purposes. When he said what he said, John lets us know he didn't say this on his own accord. Now, by that, John does not mean that that God controlled him like a robot or a puppet. Nor did this even happen in the same way that God spoke through Balaam's donkey. Because Caiaphas was not speaking contrary to his own desires or nature or will. Caiaphas spoke his intentions and his nature and his will. And had, he had his own meaning behind these words. He was communicating his satanic plan on an earthly and fleshly level. But by the sovereign decree of God, he spoke in such a way as to simultaneously prophesy God's plans. His words were reflective of what would actually happen on a cosmic and redemptive level, according to God's expressed meaning. And God's intention with his son was also sacrificial that Jesus would, in fact, die for the nation, that he would be sacrificed for the people, but in a totally different way than what Caiaphas intended. He would not be offered up to the Romans to stave off a political overthrow. No, his sacrifice was to stave off something much more terrifying than the Roman army. Rather, he was offered up to God as a sacrifice for sin, to satisfy the just and holy and eternal wrath of God against sin for all who believe. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Or as God spoke through the prophet Isaiah 700 years before this happened, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief when His soul makes an offering for guilt. You see, this was always God's plan. From eternity past, 
Jesus was the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. This is why Jesus was introduced by John the Baptist in the way that he was. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the sacrificial Lamb to take away sin. By God's decree, God's plan, he became a sacrifice unto God for the people both for the Jewish nation, the elect Jews, and beyond that nation. It wasn't just about the Jews, but it was also together in the children of God from every tribe and nation and tongue. And to make them one. To make a a new race of people where there is no distinction. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus because we are the children of God now. A chosen nation, a royal priesthood unto God, created by the very sacrifice of Christ. That's what God was doing in the midst of all of this. Yet, all of this was achieved and carried out by the wicked plans of evil men doing their father's bidding. This is God's sovereignty at work. And this is, this is how the church has always understood and celebrated what happened here and God's sovereignty over this situation. You see this clearly expressed in the early church in Acts chapter 4. After the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, when the early Christians are still running into trouble from the Sanhedrin, they offered up a prayer to God, quoting Psalm 2, and they said this. Acts 4.24 says, They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and their rulers who are gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Antipas, and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Why were they all gathered? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God is in control. His wisdom and sovereignty is beyond comprehension. It is so far beyond comprehension that he doesn't just merely stop his enemies. He actually uses their evil actions and their very own desires and choices to carry out his good purposes. That's why his sovereignty does not nullify human culpability. These men did exactly what they wanted to do, what they intended to do. But in that, they carried out God's plan to a T. His power is beyond comprehension. And that's not just true in the crucifixion of Christ, but in everything. Everything. 
Just as Joseph said to his brothers after he had spent 13 years in slavery and in prison, in a pit, because of their actions, he says to them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. It was not that God turned it for good. God meant it for good from the get-go. That's always how he operates. And that's why we can take such great comfort in what may be my most returned to verse in all of Scripture, Romans 8, 28. We know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. That's his promise. All things work together for good. All things means all things. From the daily struggles of life up to and including the most evil plot in human history. And look to how Jesus responds to all this. Look at verse 53, this withdrawal. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went from there to the region near the wilderness, a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. See, the plot has been set forth. The planning is underway. And Jesus knows it. But he will not be taken until his time is fulfilled, until the perfect moment the moment that God has ordained for his death, which is Passover, because he is the Passover lamb. And so he withdraws to Ephraim. And so from here on out, we're going to see this satanic plot unfold. But at the same time, we're actually watching the Father's plan being carried out. This is why Jesus will say to his disciples at the end of it all in John 14, when his time has come, The ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. You see, Satan did not know what he knows now about God's plan. If he did, he never would have crucified the Lord of glory. What he thought was his greatest victory was the sealing of his ultimate defeat. Can you just imagine how frustrating it must be to be the devil? (laughs) To know that everything you have ever done to war against your enemy, no matter how well thought out, no matter how carefully orchestrated, no matter how vicious and cruel, at the end of all things, all you ever accomplished was the carrying out of God's eternal purposes. Praise God. At the end of the day, Satan is just a tool in God's woodshed. He's not to be feared. Only God is to be feared. And so are all those who follow in his wake. They are just tools in God's woodshed also. Doing his bidding unbeknownst to them. And for that reason, we as God's children, we don't have to worry about what's going on on the global scale of things. We don't have to worry about the World Economic Forum, nor who's controlling our current puppet president, And I don't mean that as a slight, but just as a matter of fact. Because behind them all is a sovereign God working out His redemptive plan. Everything is working out this redemptive plan. 
And even more comforting, we don't have to wonder about the end purposes of the hardships that we face and walk through in this life. Because the end purpose is always good. It's good. Even when you can't see it, it's good. If God can use the most evil moment in history to bring about the greatest good in history, then surely we can be assured that He's working good in our struggles in life. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The only thing we have to do is trust in that. Is trust in His goodness at all times. Let's pray. Well, Father, there is none like you. Hallowed be your name. You are high and lifted up and too awesome for our thoughts to comprehend you. We thank you for the insight that you've given us here. That we can rest and know that you are in control. That this world is working out exactly what you have decreed. And that your purposes will prevail in every situation. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son. Thank you for the redemption that we have in him. We pray, Father, that you would continue to stir up our affections and our trust in Christ every day. That every struggle that we face or hardship we walk through would cause us to just depend upon you all the more. Thank you for your grace, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.